日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へ Hey, welcome back to the Samurai Cars Podcast. Again, for yet another fun filled episode. I'm at Nagashino again. I'm at、well, Nagashino yet again. Look, it's not my fault you guys keep wanting to do this. <laughs> Don't blame me. The, 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 the public gets what the public wants. No, no, no that's good. That's good. Okay, so、uh, we're coming to you live via podcast. That's my favorite phrase.、Uh, from the University of Hawaii at Manoa, aka the oven. Yes. And, yeah. And fortunately, there is no construction today, or if there is, it's happening on another part of the campus. So, today we're going to interview Nate、uh, in regards to his paper and presentation on the Battle of Nagashino. And he made、uh, quite a splash at the Japan Studies Association conference that we went to, but we'll, we'll get to that later. And so,、uh, basically, it'll just be an interview about the actual paper itself, about what he discovered, what he came up with, and、uh, also we'll have him talk about the accepted version of Nagashino versus what he's come up with and how confident he is in his, his、uh, results. And、uh, prepare for some tears. Yeah. <laughs> and、uh, I guess if this is your first podcast or if you've been skipping around, I- I'd probably recommend that you.、Uh, Also, listen to episode one and two. That was the Battle of Nagashino and its context in the military revolution. Uh, this, uh, the military, military revolution theory will most likely come up、uh, in this podcast today.、Uh, also, another thing you want to listen to is episode 25. That's the military history lesson sen-、uh, strategy versus tactics, a Sengoku example. You get some of the military jargon, the military、uh, terminology. So, to sort of prep yourself for this podcast, you may want to go back to it, although it's not a requirement. Just a heads up that it may be, may be useful.、Uh, you'll also, of course, want to listen to episode 36, Samurai as Commander. That's ac- the, actual, the actual audio of Nate giving his presentation at the JSA conference. And so that'll sort of give you some background on what his paper's actually yeah, it's about. Complete, complete with all the audience members I paid to, to, to gasp, to,、uh, gasp and share. Talk about how amazing it was. Yeah. Okay, and without further ado, I guess we'll sort of step into the interview here.、Um, well, as everyone knows or should know by now, if you've listened to the podcast, Nate has basically been doing、uh, a thesis on the Battle of Nagashino, different aspects,、uh, which we'll get into today. This particular paper, if you want to give us sort of just a brief overview of the big picture, what you were trying to do, what the point was, we'll kind of take it from there. Okay. Well, I guess it, it, it started out. I'm a.、Um You know, as, as I think most of the listeners know, I'm a master's student here at University of Hawaii,、uh, also an officer in the US Army. And I wanted to do for a long time you know, a, a military analysis of、uh, Nagashino,、uh, primarily just because the、uh, you know, American military audience, at least, has never been exposed to it.、Um, so. You know, my initial thought was just to do a basic, you know, like one paper on looking at Nagashino and, and,、uh, and describing it. And, you know, it wouldn't be anything, you know, I didn't think it was going to kind of blow up into what it has. So、uh, I'm what's called a Plan B student、uh, because the Army has to get me out of here in 18 months. I don't have time to do a full. Thesis in addition to all the other coursework. So、mm. uh, instead of defending a thesis, I defend two papers.
uh, and the first paper I did, which we did a podcast on, one of the uh, one of the first two podcasts we talked about it. Yeah, episode one and two. Yeah, it was um, the uh, uh, about the historiography of Nagashino, and that was kind of like the lead in to this whole thing. When I eventually get around to doing something with it, as far as publishing, it'll probably be the introduction to the book. Uh, but um, you know, the more I I started looking at things about Nagashino, the more I found you know conflicts between different authors and it was like okay well this secondary author and this secondary author say different things and this third one over here says something completely different so let me go back and look at the original sources and so you know I, I did that to an extent in that paper and found that the original sources of course you know conflict with each other and don't agree and and so forth so um, that paper ended up getting just really just going in depth with the historiography um, and never actually making it around to doing the analysis of the battle um, because I, it was just such a trail of rabbit holes you know that I had to go down to trace uh, different things and, and, and so forth so but it was um, a good foundation for yeah what well it what it what it showed me is that you know there really needed to be some reevaluation of Nagashino from a different uh, perspective, uh, and that all these historians, smart people that they may be, you know, we're we're essentially chasing their tails, arguing over the same things. You know, is this book or that book, that, yeah. you know, a more correct source? Or well, this one says this. Well, you know, yeah, uh, the guns is a is a perfect example. You know, uh, Shinshokoki says one thousand guns. Shinshoki says three thousand guns. Well, when I you know, looked at the actual Japanese in the Shinjoki or Shinjokoki rather, it's written in a way where you could, if you're taking a superficial look at it, you, you could say, oh, this says that they had 1,000 guns. Or, it, because what the actual, uh, what the actual Japanese says is that they selected 1,000 gunners. Well, does that mean that they only had a thousand guns, or does that mean out of a larger number, they selected one thousand of them to go that? So, and even um, even a question like that doesn't seem to have been asked by any historian. Exactly. So it just raised so many things in my head going through this. It was like, all right, and what I what I realized was that things needed to be looked at in a different way. You know, when your written sources don't match up and don't provide a clear picture. Um, you have to come up with some different approach. Uh, and so it, it was interesting because the, the approach that I wanted to use, which was coming from um, my own military background, uh, using the, you know, the training and the way that we, we are taught to analyze current battles, is what I wanted to do with this in order to explain it to a military audience. Mm. But it ended up working out that this was really short of going up and you know digging up the entire battlefield which I don't have the time or resources to do right now anyway so what it what I found out by by doing this is um, you know normally you have the information and then you you do the analysis to you know determine good bad whatever who 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 won why they won whatever well I kind of applied things backwards because we know who won we have some gaps though in the facts about how they won. Mm. So I kind of overlaid, 
you know, the military decision-making process and mil uh, military mission analysis to try to figure out the logical answers to those gaps. Yeah, so, I mean, that was, that was the intent with this, um, with the second paper, this, and this is the one that I presented a portion of at the JSA conference, and um, it'll be, those two papers will, are the ones that I'll be defending for my, uh, for my MA uh, oh, next see. month. Uh, you know, the lead-in and then the, the, the second one. Uh, and then I actually had enough material that um, I couldn't include just because it got so gosh darn long. Uh, I took out about another 20 pages of material and made it into a third paper that I did for my, uh, for my Asian uh, security policy course. And I took uh, contemporary international relations theory and applied it to uh, the Sengoku period. Mm. So, yeah. So, towards the beginning of the paper, you spend quite a few pages explaining the um, sort of the strategic, operational, and tactical right. level right. Um, um, sort of circumstance or the situation as it stood right. for each of the three major players the Takeda, the Oda, and the Tokugawa. And as someone who is, you know, as interested as the next guy in Sengoku period, but I never really managed to have a really good grasp on that. I just I found those pages really helpful, really useful, because I don't know. You just you hear like all of these names. You know, there's uh, Mikata Gahara, and there's Nagashino, and there's you know like how they all interact, and right. where where are these people located? Wh which territories are they in? And are they moving from north to south, or who's trying to invade who? So that was extremely useful. And also in terms of the terminology, which comes up later, um, I mean, I always had a pretty good sense of what force composition meant, mm -hmm. force disposition, but now I feel like I have a much more solid idea. So that's really, when I go back and I read Turnbull or somebody more reputable, sorry, <laughs> when, I go back and, when I go back and read, um, so now when I go back and read, you know, any kind of military history, Sengoku military history, I'll have a much better idea exactly what's being talked about. But Okay, so would, would, would you like to describe those two terms pretty quickly? <laughs> okay, sure. Um, well, I, as far as the, the levels of war framework, which is, which is what you referenced when you right. said the strategic, operational, and, and tactical level, I won't right. rehash that because we've already got a podcast dedicated to that. Right. Episode we, uh, 25. Episode 25. Um, so for the listeners, go back, listen to that. And I will say that as I was writing that part of the paper... I must have re-listened to that podcast about seven, eight times through the course of it. I would have it on playing while I was, oh, really? you know, doing dishes or in the shower. Help because every time I listened to it, I would get another idea that would generate in that. of uh, in my head. So see, the podcast is begetting other things. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, it's in, that that framework is important um, to. Uh, because it, it helps it, it helps you understand why actions taken at one of those levels are important and how they drive and affect actions at the other levels right um, so uh, you know again um, I'll, I'll pretty much leave it at that uh, mm -hmm. unless we have you know come up with something else to uh, specific about that but um, as far as like the the other terms um, like force you know composition disposition and strength are the the three terms that as a as a unit intel officer when I'm looking at the enemy unit that we're planning against 
those are the three terms that we use to describe the enemy. Mm. Um, the uh, disposition kind of encompasses, you know, what are they doing, where are they at, what's going on with them. Composition is is what are they made of. So for you know for for a modern context, you know, I'm either looking at, we'll say, you know, when I was in Korea, we'd be, you know, planning hypothetical exercise battles against North Korean battalions and so forth. So I would know how many troops they had, how many you know, tanks, all that stuff, right? Uh, for looking at some play, uh, you know, something from the Sengoku period, um, it's a bit harder because they don't have what you call a line and block chart, which outlines, okay, this unit has, you know, will always have 800 people in it, and they'll, they will be, right. you know, 600 of them will have spears, and 200 will have guns. It's, you don't have that. Yeah. Um, so that was one of the biggest challenges in trying to, to, to analyze Nagashino. But yeah, and then of course strength is how many how many you know troops do they have? If it's a if it's a, a unit that typically encompasses eight hundred people, but because of prior combat action they've you know lost some uh, right. to the casualties or, or so forth. You, you know you learn to factor that in so that you can accurately plan for what you're up against. Right. Um, that same process, though, is useful in evaluating what pre-modern armies in the sense of, you know, you have to know what they had there before you can try to figure out what they did. Right. Kind of thing. So, so in your paper, you uh, use the U.S. military's military decision-making process in your analysis right. of the Battle of Nagashino. Uh, so sort of a two-part question you can tackle here is... Uh, of course, what exactly is the military decision-making process? What does it mean? What does it entail? And secondly, what were you trying to accomplish by using this, uh, as, I guess, as a framework or a lens to look at the Battle of Nagashino? Okay, um, good question. Uh, the, the military decision-making process, or MDMP, I'll reference that for short, is it, it's essentially the, uh, the process by which military commanders uh, determine courses of action. So for any given situation, we generally follow this process, you know, sometimes in abbreviated form, depending on what's going on. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's how we come up with, okay, we're gonna get this mission to go over to this place and do X. Well, starting from square one, what all information do we have to know? How do we use that information to determine what the best way to accomplish that task is, et cetera? Um, the reason I, I use it and, and apply it is because this is a process that the U.S. Army has put together. It, I mean, it didn't just come out of a vacuum. It's been analyzed and the, the different things that are necessary to, uh, to be involved in planning over centuries and centuries of, of observing military operations and seeing what needs to be done and, and common threads and, and so forth. Um, which is why one of the points I make in the paper is that, you know, even though this is a, a modern construct, it's still a lot of the things that would be familiar to a, uh, to a military commander in the Sengoku period. You know, they're not going to have this set format that lists out step one through, you know, whatever of what they're supposed to do, but it's all stuff they're going to know and be doing, just not in the, in a, I mean, Right. Let's face it. You know, the army is 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 
tries to make things idiot proof. We we put things in lists so that we get you know so that anybody can go through and go okay step one I need to know what the terrain is. Step two I need to know what the weather is. Right. Step three right. But these aren't things like you know somebody in in 1575 is going to be like oh wait you know. I, I wouldn't have thought about need, needing to know the weather. No, they would have known these things. They just didn't have this checklist that they were going off of. So it's kind of like a, it's sort of universal principles that have been codified. Exactly. To sort of retroactively look at exactly. these older battles. Exactly. So um, <clears throat> one of the reasons I like it, particularly for military, you know, analysis of military historical events, is that um, it forces you to look at every single aspect. Um, you know, as a military commander, mm. you have to look at things like. Do I have enough food for my troops? We have in, in uh, the analysis process, and also um, there's another kind of guide that I used, rough guide that I used called uh, uh, the uh, five paragraph operations order format. Uh, and this is, this is literally how our orders are constructed in the US military. Mm. So the first paragraph is the situation. That's where you talk about the terrain, you know, where you're going to be, you talk about the enemy, what you know, disposition, composition, strength I talked about, you list your own forces, and you basically create the picture through what we now call intelligence preparation of the environment, but it used to be intelligence preparation of the battlefield. Anyway, that's not important, but there's a, it's, that's another process that feeds into this process, and there's like a yeah, whole bunch whole. of them that I ended up using that I don't talk about in specifics in the paper, but anyway... All these building blocks go together to build this, the picture of the situation. So then the next thing is the mission. You have to know, okay, what am I trying to accomplish? Either, like for us, that's normally something, at least in my experience, because I'm not a four-star general, um, it's usually somebody above us has given us, you will do this. So that's, we you know the situation, we know, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do in this situation. The execution would be how you create how you're going to do that, mm. um, and that's where the mission analysis and MDMP process come in, is taking what you know from the situation and the, and the mission and figuring out the different courses of action that you can then input into your execution. That's where most of the analysis historically lies, um, not necessarily followed in that format or anything, but when you go pick up a book by military historian X or whatever on the, a battle. That's kind of the areas that they're focusing on. Oh, well, the terrain was this, and, and that's all great. But what I would like to eventually get to, I, I couldn't for this as much as I would like, but there's two more paragraphs. There's service and support, which is how are we feeding ourselves? How are we sustaining ourselves? If it's a modern battle, you know, how am I getting gas to my tanks and stuff like that? For the Sengoku, it'd be like, Okay, where are we putting our baggage train so that the enemy doesn't get to it? Um, you know, how many bullets do I have? How, has the order of extra guns from Kunitomo come in in time for me to use them? Right. And those sorts of things. And I think there's a lot that we can learn, not only about um, how things, how sus supply and sustainment may have affected the battle, or, you know, things like if we know if we know the chain of supply for Oda's guns, then that'll give us better figures on answering the question of did he have 1,000, did he have 3,000, did he have 
you know, more than that. And it, and it fleshes out the overall narrative of, right. of the campaign, you know, or, or campaign or, or of his entire sort of right. career, even, right. right? Rather than just looking at, you know, battle A, battle well, B, battle C. And that's the C. stuff that, that, that tells you if you're, you're looking for more of an anthropological slash ethnographic um, right. approach to, you know, it tells me, okay, if I'm Ashigaru on the battlefield, what am I eating? Right. How am I filling my stomach to, you know, right. who's giving me, uh, you know, this suit of lone armor to, you know, protect myself with? And then so... And, and just and economic, yeah. economically, for lack of a better word. You know, sure. I mean, who is Kunitomo? What is his relationship to all of this? Without him, where would everybody else be? Right, right. The, the, so I, I think that's an important thing that kind of fleshes out the bigger picture. Because you can, you, you, people, you know, I, you have different groups who are interested in, in studying different aspects of things. You, you know, people are focused on, well, who won? And what's the political ramifications of it? And that's where most of the study has, has, has been. But there's also, you know, this whole other side of people who want to know, well, what did the Ashigaru, wh what did they wear? What did they look like? What did, uh, you know, where, where did they set their campfires the night before? Um, you know, how was their life? And that kind of gives you that. The, uh, the, the fifth paragraph uh, of the, uh, the op order is uh, command and signal. And this is one that I'm particularly interested in. Um, because it, it, you know, what we use it for now primarily is is our communications plan. You know, what radio frequencies are we on, mm -hmm. and what what code words you, we're using, yada yada yada. But it forces you to look at things like chain of command and how did decisions get made. Right. So for me, it would be, and, and this is one of the things that I try to um, come up with in the paper is. You know, things like um, Takeda Katsuyori, lots and lots of debate about, oh, well, you know, so stupid of him to do this. Well, how was that decision process made? Um, and that's, that's where, so I think utilizing that framework, um, both the, 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 through the mission analysis and the five paragraph op order, um, which are complementary, include a lot of the same things in each, it helps you get into the mindset of the commanders there on the ground as they're, you know, and look at, okay, what information did they have to make their decisions with? And how did they construct their, their plans? Um, and I think that gives you so much more understanding of what could have, you know, what the, the situation was than simply looking at what was written in the Shinshoki or the Shinshokoki and, and fighting about, you know, <laughs> about, about that nonsense. I, anyway, I, I mean, I, I, I guess what I, was, what I was coming to with that was this provides a systematic way of looking at things. And in the modern military, we use it because we don't want to miss any step as we're planning right. a future battle, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, or operation of any type. But what it allows you to do is when you take it and look at a historical battle by either filling, filling in the parts that you know and then seeing what gaps in this that you don't, it, it helps not only kind of channel where your 
where you need to look, and and I, you know, it was great pointing out the places, the the different uh, gaps in knowledge about Nagashino, but it also can help suggest answers to that. Like, you know, when I was looking at it, I was looking at um, Katsuyori's command process for what he, you know, for his decisions to attack uh, at, at Nagashino. By looking at what his viewpoint of the situation was, uh, which. Not to say that people haven't done that in the past, but I don't think anybody's really done it in quite a systematic way. I think usually they're making assumptions about... Right. They're just making assumptions. Right. Then it, it, you see the interplay between what Nobunaga and Tokugawa Ieyasu did to deny him information and to, to give him false information uh, that affected his decision process. Right. Uh, and so based on his flawed view of the situation, when you, when you take that into account, it seems less, what's the word, uh, idiotic <laughs> to have attacked uh, based on building that situational awareness, right. you know, of, of what he had. So um, I just, I don't, I don't think anybody really has taken this sort of approach to Nagashino. Well, I know they haven't done it to Nagashino before, and I, I'm... I was really surprised as I did more and more research that uh, this hasn't been done with a lot of past historical battles. Right. Um, and it just doesn't seem to have really you know, been a method of analysis that people have used before. So it seems like focusing on textual sources might I mean I haven't I haven't read that many I haven't read pretty many any of the secondary sources. I don't know where people are coming from, but it would seem to me that probably if you're relying very heavily on the Shinshoki, the Shinshokoki, the Koyogunkan, that you're um, um, you're allowing yourself to be led into a much more narrative kind of I don't know, it's just a, it's a different view of the battle. Right. Rather than really asking these kinds of questions about tactics and about placement on the field and sort of like you know, very, I don't even know a better way to put it, but just looking at the battle as a battle as a right. military event, rather than looking at it as a narrative event, yeah, or a political. Right. So basically, uh, well, and, and well, or you know, or looking yeah. at it as a, as a point in the in the biography and the story of these people, right? Which right. it's it's just it's a different approach, right? right. And, and I think that's what has um, affected a lot of the research on it. Is you know, when you're writing, you know, an overarching political history. Like, take someone, and I'll use him because I actually think his book is fantastic, uh, Jiro and Lamers, his biography of Oda Nobunaga. He spends about a page and a half on Nagashino, uh, which is all pretty much taken from the Shinshoki version with some borrowing from, uh, um, I think he, he uh, cites Fujimoto Masayuki um, a couple times. But he's writing about the life and the political rise of Oda Nobunaga. There's nothing his, wrong with that. Right and so for him, it doesn't matter whether Nobunaga had a thousand guns or three thousand guns. I mean, he goes with, you know, the Shinshoki version because that's what he uh, bases most of his research on, and, and for legitimate reasons. Sure, sure. Um, but, I'm, yeah. but yeah, I mean, it's it's it takes wanting to find out something different about it, you know. Mm-hmm. And and there's been very few people who have actually looked at it for, as a military event. And looked at okay, why? So basically, what you're yeah. saying, or, or basically in a nutshell, 
So basically, what was done prior to the battle and what was done on the battlefield uh, affected what Katsuyori did. And people don't look, they look at what he did in the context of everything else. They don't look what he did in, con in the context of the battle. And the context of the battle is why he made the decisions he did, not maybe some over. Right. Most of most reason. of the analysis. I mean, let's face it. Most analysis is, you know, because it's done after the fact. You know the result. Mm -hmm. So it's real easy to look at simple facts, like, okay, Katsuyori had. It, you know, I mean, we we see that that he had half uh, or less than half of the forces of the Oda and Tok uh, Tokugawa combined. Mm. We see that, uh, you know, according to the reports. They the Takeda lost uh, over two thirds of of their army, so it's really easy to just look at those things and go, well, gosh, he shouldn't have attacked. That was right. dumb. Right. Um, and it and it fits into a broader narrative. Yes. Of, of crafting. I mean, the way that history crafts people yes. into good guys or bad guys or you know idiots or geniuses. Yes. And, and that very much is the case with Takeda Katsuyori. If you read the yeah. Koyo Gunkan. Uh, which is the you know the the, the history of the Takeda clan under Shingen and then Katsuyori. Mainly written from the point of view of Shingen was so good, it's a shame that his son fucked things up. Exactly. <laughs> um, I, I mean, that's really how it how it comes out. Yeah. Uh, and of course, then colors this entire discourse about uh, the you know about the battle that that this is the point where he goes wrong. And everything, you know, from that point on. Yeah, so that's another thing that, that using this, uh, the, the military analytical framework does. It allows you to step away from that narrative mm. and to not, you know, to analyze things, uh, you know, both facts and, uh, and decisions that were made uh, on their own merits away from any type of, uh, you know, well, in this book, this person said this was a dumb idea, so it must have been a dumb idea. Yeah, so basically you can you can look at it and, and give Nobunaga and Tokugawa forces credit for enticing him to attack when exactly. it probably wasn't a good idea, and so maybe he was working off of the best information he had at the time and not some, like, rash belligerent right. urge to attack. Right. And, and, I mean, there are different things that I talk about in the paper and I talked about in the, uh, the presentation, like, um, you know, this is a good example... Uh, of this is the uh, the the supposed letter uh, from Sakuma Nobunori to that went to the Takeda, uh, offering to change sides in the middle of the battle. We, you know, it's only mentioned in I think two of the uh, two of the primary sources. Um, there's no existent copy of the letter. There's no there's no proof that it happened, right? So. You know, I understand why people, why there, um, you know, might be uh, historians who are doubtful that this actually existed. Uh, but when you look at it from the the point of you know Katsuyori's view of the situation, it makes sense in context because, okay, he he does have a force that's half the size. You know, did he know that? Mm, I don't think so. I don't think he quite understood this, the mm. how many troops Nobunaga brought because of the counter reconnaissance efforts by the uh, the Oda and the Takeda around the Oda and the Tokugawa. But even if he knew that, okay, I, he may not have knew, known that he was facing a source twice his size, but he probably knew that there was a, a you know that there was a force bigger than his 
So you might, you know, as a commander, you might be inclined to, to okay, be a little cautious and whatever. And then, but what would make you, what would make you not cautious? If you knew that one of the major commanders on the other side was going to change sides, I mean, he didn't. Right. But if you were led to believe that he was, and that you therefore had the advantage because Nobunaga and Ieyasu don't know that he's they going don't to know train. that. At the very minimum, if Nobumori changes sides in the middle of the battle, it's going to cause a disruption in the the, the Oda lines. Right. At at best. Depending on where he's positioned, he you know yeah can waltz in and kill Oda Nobunaga himself, and then that's all, all all your work is done for you. It's all rainbows and lollipops. Um, Yeah. So, can I say definitively that yes, Sakuma Nobumori sent a you know uh, a letter to the Takeda saying I'm going to switch sides to you? No, I can't. And unless we, you know, somebody in an attic somewhere in in Aichi Prefecture finds one. Um, it's it, nobody's going to be able to prove it. However, given the context and the situation, I think it's reasonable to to not dismiss it to say that th- that it's a distinct possibility that that did happen. You all, you also uh, well in regards to the military decision making process and that you're using that as the framework. You also went into great detail on the uh, limitations of using the military decision making mm-hmm. process, which uh, right. yeah I thought was actually pretty impressive because you're basically covering all bases. You're not using it as a framework, but then sort of ignoring the limitations. You actually tackle the fact that there are limitations. But uh, just in brief, if you want to let us know, or let the listeners know what some of these limitations in using modern military decision-making <laughs> retroactively. Sure, sure. sure. Well, um, it, it's limited in, in a couple ways. Uh, one, I mean, it's important to understand that the, the armies of the time period that we're dealing with are not professional armies. Um, and, and that means a couple things. One, uh, like I mentioned before, you know, they don't have a standardized organization, uh, a line and block chart that says, okay, you know, Baba Nobuharu is going to have 800 troops armed this particular way. And those are key things to know using the military decision-making process and mission analysis and, and, uh, and so forth in planning what we do now. I mean, I, I know how many, you know, troops we have in my own unit when I'm doing planning as a commander. I can, well, depending on what type of enemy we're facing, I may or may not, it may be difficult or not. Um, it's easier when you're, when you're facing another army, for instance, in, in the modern world. We've had to adjust that because now going into places like Afghanistan where we're fighting terrorist cells and stuff like that, it doesn't quite, um, they don't exactly have a standardized unit size either. Um, so that's something that we've had to, to, to work around in the modern world. But yeah, so that's a big problem when looking at a pre-modern army because they don't, you know, you have to come up with some way to, to, to work around that. Um, uh, also, under them being non-professionals, I mean, y- you have to recognize that, that these principles and so forth that, that I talk about um, and that, that I use in my analysis they're principles that have been handed down, you know, that that are been collected over time, and you can see that throughout history, the reasons people win battles is that they adhere to these, and the reasons people lose battles is that they don't, regardless of space, time, whatever. Um, but you know, I've gone through 
extensive military education where you know these are all ingrained in me and this process is ingrained in me and it, it, it's it's such a natural process for me because I've done it I've lived it I've you know spent late you know till time till two in the morning doing this stuff you know in Korea and Afghanistan and all that stuff so pre-modern militaries did not have this sort of training system um, we know that you know the the Samurai and uh, you know different commanders studied things like Sun Tzu, uh, because you know I mean it was Takeda Shingen's banner was a quotation from Sun Tzu. We know they had access to that, but they did not have like a standardized officer corps. They did not have um, the same you know type of uh, standardized training that we do today. So you you have to be aware that as you're trying to construct what a commander's thought process was. I use the framework because it's a convenient framework and it allows me to look at all these things. But at the same time, like I said before, Nobunaga did not have a checklist where he's going, okay, uh, now we have to talk about command and signal. So, okay, I'm in right. charge, and Hideyoshi, you're number two, and right. Iyasu, you're number three. And he was and probably so considering these things, and he was considering right. whether he was a signature, but it, right. if, if, there were, if there were lapses... It wasn't codified, basically. Yes. But, yeah. But also, if if there were lapses, you know, I don't know. It seems more. It seems like a, a, a possibility. You know, that Katsuyori may have just been like, "Oh, I completely forgot to account for such and such." You know, we don't. And yes, you can't assume that he was using exactly the right, the same process. Right. Because right. he wasn't. Right. The last thing, I guess, really, um, in terms of you know where this this is something. This is a framework that we can use uh, to to suggest answers to these missing, uh, you know, missing bits of information, um, and with, that we can use to rule out the likelihood of some things. But an analytical framework isn't going to give you facts. You know, unless we dig something up or somebody finds a, another diary of, of a you know, soldier at the battle that gives specifics about where things were at, um, that we can use to then update the information that we have. All, I'm, all I can do is paint a picture of what I think is likely. So I'm fully aware, and I, I think everybody needs to be fully aware, that whatever analytical framework you're using, it's entirely, you're, you're coming up with most likely scenarios. Most likely scenarios don't necessarily mean the way it happened. Right. So, um, yeah. So in regards to the uh, you know, modern military analysis and military decision-making process uh, being applied to, uh, say, medieval battles, uh, in this case, Nagashino, but in general, are you the first uh, to sort of apply this in, 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 academic, in, in academic circles? <laughs> because based on the reaction, um, uh, it, it appears that you may be, but uh, that may not be the case. I, that's, that's interesting um, because there's apparently yes and no. Uh, is the answer to that. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll explain. I, I haven't seen anybody do it to the extent that I do, uh, certainly in Japanese history. There have been people who have uh, suggested that terrain, you know, that terrain analysis and like uh, and additional archaeology, you know, archaeological research needs to be done uh, in order to do stuff. Uh, Dr. Thomas Conlon talks about that specifically in regards to Nagashino. Uh, he also, you know, quotes uh, Owada Tetsuo, who has talked about the same thing. And so, you know, 
there are people, specifically regarding Nagashino, who have said you have to understand the battlefield. You have to, um, you know, and if you don't understand the terrain and if you don't think about that, then that's not, you know, your analysis is useless. Um, Awada Tetsuo actually uh, criticizes a lot of other people who've written about Nagashino uh, by saying it's obvious that they've never actually been to the battlefield. So, so that's something I made sure that I did. I've mm. uh, been uh, twice now to Nagashino, uh, and and so I, I feel that I've made the effort to be familiar with it and to um, and and also you know place a lot of prime importance in terrain analysis and understanding the ground, which I cover in the extended paper uh, was not didn't talk about that a lot in, in the actual presentation uh, just simply because it, it wasn't where the meat and bones of, of what the, the JSA uh, people were going to want to hear about. Regarding in general, uh, I, there, there's been some people who've, who've come up with this uh, independently uh, with applying different military doctrinal principles. Honestly, I'm surprised I have not seen it as much as I have uh, or as much as I would expect, um, because to me, it's just, this is the way I think. This is how, I, I don't, you know, just having come up through my military career this way, this is how I, I if I read anything about any battle, this is how I'm going to think about it. Um, and we do in our own military schools, this is how we're taught to uh, look at battles, and we have to do reports like, this is the whole genesis of this was when I was a, a captain way too long ago, about 10 years ago, um, 11, 10 years ago. I, uh, I was going through uh, Intel school and we had to do a, a battle analysis paper. And since nobody had ever heard of Nagashino, that's what I decided to do. And that started the ball rolling with this, this project. But I mean, so, so we're doing it internally as, as a military as a way to teach people to think about you know, military operations. As far as an academia goes, the since I've done the paper and the presentation, um, I've actually had contact with uh, some uh, uh, professors uh, out at, at, at different locations who are using military doctrinal framework, uh, specifically the levels of war, the uh, strategic, uh, operational, and tactical, uh, and also uh, terrain analysis in their work doing uh, what's called conflict archaeology. So it's called conflict archaeology because it encompasses more than just looking at the battlefield itself. So fortification sites or you know any, anything that would be involved with military operations. So we've had some interesting uh, discussion back and forth and I've done some, some more research to see how this is being used in to inform archaeological exploration of different battle sites. I guess to, to, to answer your question, there are some people who have started uh, doing this. I think that where, where I differ from that is, is really um, in the, uh, the way that I apply the, the, the terrain analysis to my work. Um, not that they're doing that, but they, they're kind of coming from terrain analysis from a different, uh, just a different uh, um, standpoint but also utilizing the, the MDMP emission analysis and the, um, the, the five paragraph operations order format um, as a comprehensive list of things to look at 
that I haven't really seen quite done in the same way. Okay, so with all this in mind, uh, using modern military principles to sort of look at Nagashino, uh, I think a good question would be, uh, what can the modern military learn by examining these types of medieval battles, or could they learn anything from it? Um, I, yeah, and like I, like I said originally, that was the whole point of me wanting to do this, was to introduce it to, uh, introduce Nagashino to a, uh, an American military audience, because, you know, they just have, really have never heard of it. And I, I think through my analysis, it actually tells us more about Nagashino that is of value because the, the standard narrative about it has always been, oh, you know, lots of guns, rotating volley fire, you know. Takeda cut down. Yeah, Takeda, Takeda cut down. It's kind of like World War I machine guns, uh, you know, whatever, which is really not the case, obviously. And I, I think most current researchers uh, uh, you know feel that way and agree with that but what you what I what I found through my analysis is uh, that things like the importance of counter reconnaissance and counter reconnaissance the Shinshokoki talks about the Oda and the Tokugawa uh, force displacement prior to uh, the actual battle and uh, they show up a couple days before and the Tokugawa uh, and it points this out because they were the local force, and it was tradition uh, to give the local force the, the uh, forward position. Um, so it mentions it in that context, but what it, what it says is there's a, um, the, the ridge line that they eventually set their positions on was the Danjo-Yama, Takamatsu-Yama ridge line. What they did was the Tokugawa went one ridge line further, closer towards Nagashino Castle, where the Takeda forces were. And essentially set what we would call a, uh, a screen line in, in modern usage, which is setting your position, setting reconnaissance positions forward to see where the enemy is and to prevent them from moving and seeing where you are. So this plays into the decision-making process by Katsuyori because because the Tokugawa set so much forward, and the way that the terrain is arranged with the north-south ridge lines, they couldn't have advanced far enough, you know, in reconnaissance patrols to find out what the Oda and the Tokugawa were doing, to see how large the Oda and Tokugawa forces were, um, and and really, it's a masterful example of uh, of counter reconnaissance. And for myself, my own experience is um, as a uh, tank platoon leader and a and an intel officer at the tactical level in a cavalry unit, where we do the same types of operations, where we're you know going out forward of the force to prevent, uh, to find out where the enemy is and to prevent anybody from coming you know in the enemy from scouts from coming and seeing us. So that really stuck out to me. Additionally, the way that uh, you know deception efforts are used. Uh, with the Sakuma letter and with everything to get inside the decision-making process of Katiori and force certain decisions, um, also, you know, is very valuable to a to a, a modern uh, military audience. I think because that's again what we try to do is you know shape the decisions of the enemy so that they do what we want them to do. Mm. I would also say uh, the use of obstacles is really what first attracted me to Nagashino uh, because everybody focused on the guns and analysis of it but nobody really talked about the use of obstacles and the obstacles barricades. are the barricades the rivers the using the Rengogawa River 
and the way that the Oda and Tokugawa shape the approach of the Takeda, basically putting them into what we call, I don't, I don't use this term in the paper because I think it's a little much for an academic audience, but I, I mean, we call it kill zones. You know, it's oh, yeah. obstacles, the, the doctrinal uh, use of obstacles by the U.S. Army is to... Funnel them where you to, want. Yes, to shape the enemy's movement. Either to deny them access to an area, or to have them go around, go into a certain area that you want them to go into, and that's exactly what the Oda and the Tokugawa do. And they spend two days building this. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not simply, oh well, we just brought some barricades, threw them up, and fired from behind them. Mm-hmm. It's a concerted plan to achieve a very specific tactical effect that worked magnificently. And I, I think it's you read the Shinsho Ki and the Shinsho Koki and all these other stories, and it's like, oh yes, Nobunaga is a genius because we won and you know took lots of heads and stuff like that. <laughs> um, so I think a lot of historians kind of view that as hyperbole and kind of try to dismiss it. But if you look at the way the Battle of Nagashino is constructed through the decision-making processes and so forth, you really see that, that this was pure genius. This was. And it's not simply a matter of having more guns or right. rotating guns and so, oh, well, we can fire faster than the Takeda and the Takeda are dumb, uh, so they just keep running at us. It, it was really a, a fantastically created uh, tactical plan. So. Yeah, and in the, in the next podcast, we'll actually get into the, the actual details of the battle. So uh, everyone who's been waiting for that for the past 38 episodes we'll finally, <laughs> we'll finally get a description of the actual battle itself and also what you've come up with in your, your theories right. and your thesis so uh, last question uh, I'll pretend I don't know the answer uh, okay. what has the reaction to your paper been in academic circles uh, after your presentation um, and now that, now that the paper's kind of out there and people have sort of been hearing about it yeah it's, it's been um, it's been fantastic it's been very well received I you know have had uh, many people suggest publishing, uh, so I'm going to try to move that forward and, and, and do that. I've got some editing to do. I've got some editing to do before that uh, in order to, to meet the publication requirements because uh, it's it's too long. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, there's there's that. Um, I've I've gotten some like I said before. I've had contact from people at other universities. I, you know, I've had contact with uh, um, some uh, professors at uh, at other universities who you know who do um, uh, conflict archaeology and so are, uh, have similar ideas in the way in what they approach. Uh, and so you know we've had discussions and, and may look at uh, doing some some other kind of taking some a different approach, not necessarily um, more of the history approach, but taking a more theoretical. How to use military uh, doctrine in this type of analysis, and uh, it's it's been it's been great because um, I've been able to see what they've been doing um, from their archaeological perspective, and it's really, you know, my my whole point in coming up with this approach was that I can't do I can't go to Nagashino and dig it up. It's you know farmland. Um, I, I don't think. Right, you I mean, know, you, they'd you be too happy with you doing it. Um, and well, and I have to go back to my job in five months and 
don't have the funding and you know all right. this list. So it's like, how can I come up with this uh, with ways to approach this where I, I can't dig up any more information? So how do we relook it? Um, what what's been encouraging is that there has been reaction that this is a very good way to shape future looking at it mm. and go you know people taking the step of, of who are in a position to take that step are you know making inquiries to see what 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 can be done so I'm excited and, and hopeful and you know maybe maybe that'll go somewhere and if it if it doesn't at least the discussion is being brought up yeah um, you know at the JSA conference I had uh, lots of positive feedback from people uh, everybody was very you know enthusiastic. enthusiastic is is good yes uh, in their their uh, their praise so um, and you know my own professors here at UH have have liked it um, so you know, hopefully it's it's something I can, you know, put together in a publishable format and get it out there and yeah. and um, and go from there. So yeah, sounds good. So I, I guess that pretty much covers what we're uh, discussing today. So thank you for being the interviewee. You're quite welcome. And that wraps things up for today. So. As always, uh, it always helps us out if you uh, support the podcast by clicking on the links uh, on the podcast website. Uh, you know, any books that you're interested in getting as far as Amazon.com goes, any Japanese history books, uh, just follow the links. If you make those purchases, uh, it sends us a little bit of cash to pay the monthly fees for this and uh, doesn't cost you anything extra. You Basically, all you're doing is doing my pocket a favor. Uh, we also have the Cafe Press t-shirt shop, so that's another option if you'd like to get a t-shirt or, or three. Uh, and again, that also uh, helps me pay for everything, the server, the uh, all the various things that I have to pay for every year that, that ends up to quite a tidy sum. So I appreciate it whenever anyone buys a book off Amazon or buys a t-shirt, that's, uh, that's me appreciating you. And uh, other than that, you can reach us if you have any questions. You can get us at uh, via SamuraiPodcast at gmail.com, also on Twitter at Samurai Archives, so please drop us a line if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. Thank you guys for, and the audience uh, for you know your continued interest and indulgence in Nagashino Part 37 uh, here, and uh, we'll, we'll move on to something else, but uh, you know after this next one, but... Uh, yeah, so the next one we'll actually be discussing the actual battle itself, uh, so that will be something I'm sure a lot of people are looking forward to. And I... I I kid about how much we've been covering Nagashino, but it's actually this is actually really interesting, really important work. So yeah. I, I hope you manage to get it published, and I think it will have an actual, you know, impact. Yeah, the one of the comments from one of my professors, I won't, um, right. I won't mention who, but uh, one of the comments I got was that uh, after he read the paper was that uh, I wish you could do this for every battle in Japanese history. Yeah. So. Somebody you know, to. if somebody out there uh, listening to this owns, oh, I don't know, a publishing company, <laughs> then get in touch with me. But because uh, yeah. I, I would love to be able to 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 take this and look at uh, you know other things like uh, Kawanakajima or um, you know some of the other ones that are a little less famous even. So. Yep, so I guess that about covers it. So uh, this is Chris for Travis and Nate saying thank you for listening and uh, join us next uh, pod, next episode for more thrilling Nagashino 
information and battles. Yeah. Bye. Cut. Okay.